0: You're listening to a classic business podcast, as heard on Classic 1027.
1: 1027.
2: The world has a choice. Stop developing new oil, gas and coal fields today or face a dangerous rise in global temperatures. That is the bold assessment from the International Energy Agency, the organisation that has spent four decades working to secure oil supplies for industrialised nations in its new roadmap for achieving net zero global carbon emissions by 2050, The I.A. laid out in uh, stark terms what the planet must do to avoid harmful climate change and just how far that is from our current reality here in South Africa. That's as COP26 in Glasgow rapidly approaches. The government is forging ahead with its plans to develop and exploit our oil and gas resources, which have uh, changed dramatically in recent years. In 2019, Total announced a gigantic gas find, the Brilpada offshore exploration block, and in 2020, uh, another find in the adjacent Laypad block increased the potential gas output off Mossel Bay, which is now considered one of the most exciting areas for gas exploration in the world. At the same time, onshore helium and natural gas producer Renogen has uh, reported spectacular finds in the Free State. But the slow pace of planning and development of the necessary gas infrastructure in South Africa is likely to inhibit the establishment of the sector and certainly the uptake of gas for industrial and power generation by potential customers. We've seen a draft gas utilisation master plan, the Gump, released by government as far back as May of 2016 for public comment. However, the final version of the Gump never really made it into the public domain. The Gas Act Amendment Bill is also heading back to Parliament and raises uh, some concerns around ministerial powers. We've got planning for imported liquefied natural gas, LNG, compressed natural gas which is CNG and liquefied petroleum gas, LPG and shale gas remaining uncoordinated and haphazard as a result. Now the upstream petroleum resources development bill was approved recently uh, by cabinet and it's not yet clear when it's going to be tabled in parliament but we expect it to happen soon. If we are to successfully exploit our natural gas potential in South Africa, being mindful of not only the E in ESG, but also the S, so how do we create the conducive environment for business to invest in the sector profitably, and thereby creating social good of employment and development as a byproduct, and also the G in a manner that avoids undue rent-seeking and opportunities for corruption, how do we do this? Well, to discuss this, let's welcome our panel, Deputy Director General responsible for policy, global relations, and investment promotion in the Department of Mineral Resources in Tokosa and Kwabe, uh, Stefano Mirani, the CEO of Renagen, Nick Mitchell, Chairman of the Onshore Petroleum Association uh, of South Africa, and Peter Tard Montalto, Head of Capital Markets Research at Intellidex. Welcome to you all. DDG, kick us off. In a world transitioning to net zero carbon emissions, I think the big question and the crisp question is should South Africa push on to become an oil and gas leader as proclaimed recently by the minister?
1: The answer to that question is definitely yes. South Africa should push on with uh, the development of its resources. Um, I do however wish to say upfront We've made it very clear, Minister has over and over on different platforms made it very clear that um, South Africa is committed to a just transition. There's no argument about that. There's no question about that. We are committed to a just transition. But just transition does not mean moving from one extreme to the other immediately. It means there's a process. It's going to be a process. It's going to take time. It's going to take a a policy shift it's going to take us investing in, in in cleaner technologies but the question is what is our reality today as South Africans and our reality is that we have these resources what do we do with these resources we can't wish them away we have to exploit these resources, but in a responsible manner. As a result of that, we have a unit in the department that's currently developing a framework for just energy transition. And it's looking at a whole value chain of of, of petroleum resources um, for the country, which is a framework that will clearly outline what's going to be um, our our, our journey towards, a, 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 a low carbon economy. I think I must also mention at this point that talking about net zero by 2050 is somewhat not realistic for developing countries, but uh, South Africa in particular. And we want to take a realistic approach to say for our country, this is where we are today. We, there is no way South Africa can compare itself with um, Europe, for example, in terms of development. They are like 50 years ahead of us in terms of development. They are at a stage where their economies are more mature. And they've been exploiting these resources way longer than us. But we emphasize the fact that we are committed to a just transition. And Mm. our transition deal will come out and it will come out Mm. very clear as a country.
2: Thanks for that opening comment. Just just as a follow-up question, I had Barbara Creasy, the Minister of Environmental Affairs, on my show a couple of months ago talking about how committed government is to net carbon zero by 2050. She didn't mention that this is unrealistic for a developing country. Uh, Can you just expand on what would be realistic then in terms of the Department of Mineral Resources and Energy's thinking here in terms of time frames to net carbon zero? What is more realistic then?
1: Well, What's realistic for us is accepting that we need to start looking at firstly our legislative framework. We need to start looking at um, new technologies for the exploitation of these resources. We need to look at um, a whole lot of initiatives like energy efficiency, um, how do we we process our resources, how do we consume, how do we start implementing a number of interventions as early as now. And remember, this is a, 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 a combined effort, or it's whether we call it net zero by whatever date, or we call it a transition, which is our preference, by the way, a transition, a just transition from high carbon economy to a low carbon economy. it's going to to be a combination of a whole host of issues. It's not just on energy issues, it's it's power generation, it's it's petroleum resources exploitation, it's other industries that are contributing. And there already is in the country a number of interventions that are are being implemented. I mean, our our own uh, efforts in terms of uh, renewable energy uh, generation, it's also a step towards Mm -hmm. uh, reducing our, our, our carbon footprint so for us it, it, it's way broader than just throwing a number in the end saying 2050 or 2030 you pick a number and you just it, it, it's it's a process it's about it's about being systematic and taking into consideration our realities as a country in terms of where we are as an economy in terms of where we are in terms of growth where we are in terms of job creation etc
2: Uh, Thank you, Peter. I want to uh, bounce the ball over to you. Uh, Just in terms of the global conversation and the context, it's been a very interesting week for for big oil internationally uh, with some significant uh, uh, rulings against some uh, oil majors uh, that have shone the spotlight on this transition and and where fossil fuels currently reside. If you look at South Africa's potential in oil and gas, if you look at Brillpader, I've seen some numbers that said potentially over 20 years this could equate to as much as a trillion rand for the South African economy. Being mindful of our context and our commitment, that is uh, certainly uh, a a development that South Africa uh, would welcome at this stage. How do we square this tension between our commitment to net carbon zero, the just transition, and and being mindful of our developing country status? How do you read it?
3: Well, I think the key challenge here is the the force of movement in the global uh, dynamic on these sorts of issues is, is not South Africa's choice. Ultimately, you know, South Africa wants access uh, to just uh, transition uh, financing. that's going to require very firm commitments around net zero. Uh, that's what the IFIs and foreign governments looking to fund the just transition uh, will be looking for. The EU is imposing a, a carbon border uh, in the coming years uh, as well which uh, uh, will impose costs uh, on South Africa maybe the, the order uh, of about 350 million uh, euros a year on, uh, uh, on trade from South Africa into the EU. Um, so this is the reality, you know, foreign investors and local investors increasingly uh, are demanding uh, a move to net zero from banks, uh, from companies. Uh, we're obviously seeing uh, the traditional shareholder activism from people like JustShare becoming much more mainstream now. Um, that that's going to continue going forward. So I think the the problem here is is lodging the gas debate lodging the need for gas uh, into that into that context. Uh, you know, one one can't diverge ultimately. I think from what people are willing to fund uh, and the uh, the implications of, of making the choices.
2: Yeah, I think some banks have said, by, uh, Ned Bank certainly has come out and said, it won't be funding new uh, oil and gas by 2045. But that we're talking about a transition. It still gives the country a window period of a couple of decades to uh, exploit what we do have. Stefano, I mean, obviously, as someone who works in in the onshore uh, gas industry, it's an industry that you're, you're going to support, clearly. Uh, how do you square the inherent tensions at play here?
0: Look, we... Yeah, I come back to the fact that full caveats aside, as spectacular as the fines are that, uh, that we're making, we're not going to be utility scale that is going to, is going to come to, uh, to the grid's rescue. We're, we're, we're displacing diesel. The, the pragmatic approach that we take in terms of the transition towards net carbon zero, I think in and of itself is also something that needs to be very carefully considered. It's fine to talk about the hydrogen economy. It's fine to talk about all of the lithium EV. It's fine to talk about all of these technologies. But at the end of the day, if as a society and as a species, we aren't looking at the total cradle to grave CO2 emissions produced by various energies, then we're just putting a Band-Aid on on a severed leg. It's not going to do anything. The fact is, is that until the world actually wakes up and starts analyzing the full cradle-to-grave analysis of the CO2 production of various technologies, we're not going to get anywhere. So I'll give you a simple example. It's fine to go out and buy an EV, an electric vehicle car to drive from point A to point B. It's an amazing step in the right direction. And yes, there's the argument that the more people that buy these cars, costs come down. The lithium is still mined. That requires a dirty process. And then if you're going to recharge that EV with coal-fired power stations, the kind of which we're still running over here, the net pollution created by recharging that car in the life cycle of the car is actually higher than a petrol car. So we need to take a, a, a holistic portfolio approach. If you're looking at hydrogen, let's take a look at hydrogen. Everyone is starting this as the clean the, the next thing. 100 units of energy goes into what we call green hydrogen. So that 100 units of energy comes from the Sun into a solar panel, and you get, at the end of the day, in terms of kinetic energy, about 22 units of that original 100 units.
1: Now the argument
0: could be made, if you're going to produce 100 units of energy, and only recover 22 in the form of kinetic energy from the hydrogen when you've eventually used it and sent it through the, the value chain, would it not be better just simply putting that 100 units directly into the grid and offsetting coal so we need to have these kinds of discussions about how it is that we're going to get to a true net zero as opposed to just touting mm. new forms of technology gas is not net zero um, but we see a place for gas as a transition fuel there's, there's absolutely no question in my mind because in that analysis of 100 units, that eventually ends up as 22 in a vehicle in hydrogen, LNG. If you had to do the same, you end up with about 60 to 65 units being consumed. So already three times better off in terms of uh, in terms of how much energy you've managed to produce relative to what you took
2: in. Right, Nick, we, I just want to stop you there to bring Nick in. Nick, um, when it comes to onshore, uh, the, the Minister made mention of uh, shale in the Karoo, and according to the late Professor Bob Scholes, uh, um scientists have really found no support for significant shale gas potential in the Karoo, and the, the majors, as we know, have left the room. What's your position on that?
4: I think the what the government has announced is um, is quite interesting, and obviously we need to get into the detail um, and unpack it as as industry um, we're very supportive of what onshore potential has to offer the uh, the South African economy um, and to that extent I mean if we, if we had to break it down from an activity perspective. We've got approximately um, 18 rights holders um, in terms of various companies that, are, that have applied for rights within the country, and um, that breaks down into approximately nine technical cooperation permits, 44 exploration rights, and one production right. That's a, that's a whole host of local activity with the ability to to make some um, changes uh, to our local economy from an investment perspective not only for and we if we take that aside and we look at it from a energy perspective it has the ability to change these small local partners quite significantly and address the s in the in the esg side um quite well so we, we as an industry, are quite hopeful and uh, and very supportive of what's taking place. Um, we see a lot of opportunity, and, and um, I think it's it's this is just the beginning. Um, Two test wells have gone a long way to prove that there is something interesting in that career basin. Um, whether it's the likes of um, a client that is going to get the oil majors into the country, that all needs to be determined but i think what stefano has done with red Gen, um, has certainly proven that you don't need the oil mate to um to, to to produce something that's quite interesting and um, attractive for shareholders so and nip, um, nip the- has the capability to change
2: DDG, just having a look at that regulatory environment, we're still waiting for the Upstream Petroleum Resources Development Bill to to be tabled in Parliament, but it does look like uh, the state is not going to be asking for a free carry, it is going to be asking for 20% uh, and will have to fund part of this uh, itself. Can you just take me through the regulatory approach? That the state is thinking uh, uh, through when, uh, when we talk about creating a a conducive environment uh, that investors will will be happy with.
1: If you look at the draft, I mean, the draft bill that we gazetted in December 2019, and the bill that uh, Minister is going to be tabling in Parliament very soon, you will see that we've really spent time on on improving the bill, uh, insofar as um, ensuring that we have an investor friendly um, legislation at the end of the day for example we've looked at issues of combining an exploration right with a production right into one so that um, we assure right holders of security of tenure whereas previously the arrangement in the mprda was that um, you would apply for an expiration right. Towards um, the end of its life, then you have to come and apply for a production right and, and that tempers with security of tenure, having invested uh, huge amounts of money on expiration, for example. So we ensuring that we give investors that security of tenure. But we've also looked at um, the, the the lifespan of the rights, and we've also looked at, for example, the retention permits, because a retention permit would allow a right holder to press pause on their exploration or production program based on uh, prevailing market or economic conditions at the time. So we we looked at all those um, uh, uh, areas in the bill to ensure that we really meet investors uh, halfway in terms of um, what we put on the table as the regulatory framework or the regulatory landscape. So we've really given it a lot of thoughts and, mm. and put in a lot of work into it. Now, you asked also a question about um, state carry. Uh, following the, the, the comments that we received um, uh, in uh, March last year, because we gazetted in December, and the comments period closed in March 2020, we really delved deeper into the comments that we had received from industry and, and and some of the comments really were around whether the state carry will be 20% or 10% or a range between 10 and 20. We're not married to any number and we said that uh, from the would go. But what we are married to is transformation and ensuring that the benefits accrues somehow to South African since these are their resources and um, on, on, on the question of uh, free carry versus carried interest we've mm. moved towards carried interest based on our engagements um with, with, with industry because carried interest essentially means that um, that investment would be recoverable mm. during uh, the production phase
2: and in terms of a timeline, when, when can we expect to see the bill tabled in Parliament? Do you have a, an indication as to when the Minister is going to be tabling this?
1: Well, we are going to be gazetting um, the notice of intention to, to table. Maybe let me backtrack a bit. Following the approval by Cabinet, which allows minister basically to table the bill in parliament. There are processes, legal processes for us to follow in terms of the joint rules of parliament, of the National Assembly. So we are in that process currently, where we are going to gazette, most likely next week, the notice of intention to table, and there are letters that minister must write to the speaker of parliament to say, I hereby um, wish to inform you that I'm going to be tabling the bill, blah, 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 blah. And that process is is underway. Uh, the bill is going to be tabled in the next few weeks, essentially.
2: And uh, Nick, coming to you um, from an industry perspective, uh, having listened to what the DDG has just said about creating an investor-friendly environment, does that tick the boxes for you?
4: Certainly, it does. Um, I think the, you know, if we had to look at how we've arrived at this position. The government has um, engaged thoroughly with industry um, and, you know, we've had several sittings um, with the with the DDG's office um, and the department itself, as well as um, the Petroleum Agency of South Africa, PASA, um, who, who really does uh, do the final leg of regulation um, of the right holders. And we've had several engagements with the minister himself and um, I believe while it, we, industry didn't get everything we wanted, um, I don't believe government got everything it wanted either. And I think this is exactly the right type of balance that we need to get the, uh, the international community interested in uh, investing firstly in the country and uh, taking the economy further with, uh, with oil and gas development. It, it will really be the game changer South Africa uh, requires at this stage.
2: Peter, uh, what obstacles do you see this uh, facing in terms of challenges, uh, uh, environmental challenges, other legal challenges potentially that uh, could delay the exploitation of oil and gas in South Africa?
3: So the tabling of the bill is going to be very welcome certainly but we have a very long parliamentary process now ahead of us. It could well take uh, two and a half years for the bill to see uh, its way through Parliament unless Uh, the ANC caucus is willing to properly expedite it. Um, But we should also remember this is only half the story. We're waiting uh, for further details on the fiscal elements. All fiscal matters were removed from the original draft bill, uh, given that the Minister from DMRE can't table fiscal matters. And we need to see and have clarity Uh, on on the broader package, so taking the 20% and adding it uh, to whatever additional uh, fiscal and tax and and royalty measures come forward from National Treasury. Uh, Treasury said in the budget in February that it will release a discussion paper uh, during this year on on that matter, but that could well take some time uh, before before Mm. that is complete. So there's still a long way to go Mm. before there is the investor certainty, I think, um, for, uh, for exploitation. Uh, to start to uh, to start to happen, um, but I think we need to remember that the the pace now is picking up in terms of what people are are, are willing or not to uh, to fund uh, onshore. Um, the uh, the car power ship issue I think actually hid uh, you know these sort of corruption allegations hid the underlying debate that's going on around funding actual gas. We have of course a gas round of three gigawatts coming up from the IPP office. Uh, at the end of the year Um, but actually uh, you know on on that front uh, there is a lot of concern and a lot of investors that we talk to are are very concerned about stranded asset risk uh, going forwards on on that front even though uh, from a pure credit perspective uh, and a commercial perspective, though, those projects uh, are going to make a lot of sense. So, you know, there, there is a lot of investor certainty, I think, that still needs to be bedded into the system, um, which is part of a, a you know, broader debate uh, on, on the carbon envelopes, the Carbon and Climate Act that is forthcoming as well. We need a lot of uh, pieces to fall into place to give investors more certainty on the timelines. Um, and the uh, the period with which uh, yeah returns can be made on uh, on gas.
2: DDG, I want to bounce back to you uh, just to, with a final comment. We've got a couple of minutes to go, and based on what uh, Peter and Nick have said, just firstly on that engagement that you're having with Treasury at uh, interdepartmental level, what sort of engagement are you having with Treasury to ensure that the fiscal side uh, is aligned with uh, what you're proposing through the department?
1: Yes, indeed. You you on point, Peter. We've, we've removed completely anything that made reference to uh, fiscal terms in the bill and that emanated from our engagements with national treasury for 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 the comments period last year and the beginning of this year we've been locked up in a room with national treasury and we've agreed that constitutionally these fiscal matters reside with national treasury and I'm happy that you also um, are aware and you recognize the fact that it's it's their area of work and they're going to be releasing that discussion document very soon. But I must also say that um, the approach we are taking with National Treasury is that we rather build onto the the benefits that already exist to to strengthen this investor-friendly Uh, environment that we're trying to create. And we are at one when it comes to that with National Treasury.
2: And then uh, just in conclusion, if you were to look at fast tracking and uh, to Peter's points around the ANC caucus having to align on this as well, what sort of timelines are you envisaging? I'm sure you have conversations with big investors. Total has spent uh, uh, millions uh, of, of dollars already bringing the deep seas to Avenger, to our shores, to explore. I'm sure you have uh, conversations with them and they're, they're asking for some kind of certainty. What sort of timelines are you envisaging?
1: You know, the promulgation of this bill is, is my biggest deliverable. So personally, I would like to see the bill past in the shortest time ever. But I think you would appreciate that once the bill is tabled in Parliament, it's a process that's completely out of our hands. We provide the technical support, but we don't necessarily have control over it. At most, we are hoping that 12 months will be the longest. Obviously, understanding that there's going to have to be extensive consultations where Parliament goes out uh, to different stakeholders with their own uh, consultation process, which we don't have control over, but we're really hoping. In in fact, where we sit and the reception we've received with all the stakeholders that we've consulted, we we, we are hopeful that the bill will be finalised in a a short period of time. I don't think uh, Mm. it it can take us two years, Peter Amase. If if it does happen, it would be the biggest curveball ever.
2: Well, there we have it, part of your KPIs, no doubt. Uh, we're going to be having a look at uh, some of those ministerial uh, agreements and KPIs over the next few weeks as well. DDG, thank you very much. Responsible for policy, global relations and investment promotion inside the DMRE. DDG, Intercorso and Kwabe, who is joined around the table by Stefano Mirani, the CEO of Renogen. Nick Mitchell, Chairman of the Onshore Petroleum Association of South Africa. And Peter Richard-Montolto, Head of Capital Markets Research at Intellidex.